uh, excited to have you worshiping with us. And we continue traveling through the book of Hebrews today. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to turn there. The scriptures will also be up on the screen, um, so you can follow along as well. As we dive into this portion, I'm going to talk a little bit about a, kind of an exciting time in my life. I'm also going to show you how much I think forward into the future, uh, which can be a good thing, but also can be a detrimental thing at times as well. And to do that, I'm going to tell you a story back when I was in kindergarten. It's a true story. You can ask my dad about it. He will verify it. But this will just show you how forward thinking I can be at times. Um, we're getting ready to go to kindergarten, and I'm learning and growing in the sense that kindergarten is sort of the starting foundation to my educational process, and that obviously at the end of my educational process, um, I will go on to either get a job or go on to go to college, and then I will be living on my own. So, true concern, I turn to my dad and I say, Dad, what do I do and how do I rent an apartment? when I'm done with college. This is a true story. Obviously, my dad was kind of saying, you have plenty of time to worry about that and figure that out. But I wanted to know. I wanted to know what happens after I finish my schooling and how do I rent an apartment. And you all are probably sitting here this morning and saying, what does renting an apartment have to do with anything that we're talking about today? And what I want to talk to you about is simply this. In a moment, we're going to see the writer of Hebrews use an analogy, but a firm truth that is going to help us understand not only who Christ is, but who we are in relationship to him. As I've grown in my life, it has been a great joy and been uh, able to be blessed to be able to build our home and now be paying for it. Um, we're doing well, praise God for it, but we still have a little ways to go. I think somewhere uh, when I turn maybe 60, if I have it correct, currently the house will be paid off. And we're excited about that. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, let me just give you a couple of things. When we rent an apartment, as great as it is, there is someone who is the owner o over it. We are just tenants in that apartment. We're going to see in a moment, essentially, that the reason that individuals were to worship Jesus was he was so much more than just a steward of an apartment. He's actually the owner and the builder of it. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And the reason that we're doing that is that the book of Hebrews is one to encourage individuals in their walk with Jesus Christ. May I remind you again that Christ had come, he had lived, he had died, he had risen from the grave, he had demonstrated the power over sin and death, and was now seated at the right hand of the Father, and the new covenant had started. People were worshiping Jesus, they were recognizing truly who he was, but the problem was, was that 30 years, approximately 35 years, had gone by and things were getting hard. The people who were believing in Jesus were being persecuted for their faith, and they were beginning to wonder, is he and this worth it? And what you have to remember and recognize is that for centuries, individuals had been worshiping God in the Old Testament format. God was present among his people, but he was present in the temple. He was present in the Ark of the Covenant. And now, Jesus had obviously changed all of those things. But they began to wonder, is Jesus truly worth it? Last week we talked about the Jewish struggle with the cross. That the people who had believed in Jesus could not believe that a Messiah, their king, would actually die. And the cross was a stumbling point for them. And last week we showed you actually how the cross indeed is the victory for us. And how the cross is necessary for us to be able to relate to our Savior. This morning, we're now looking at this next portion because individuals were also turning back to Moses. Moses, as we know, was a great uh, advocate and a servant of God. He was the leader of God's people who helped them out of Egypt. He moved them forward and took them almost to the promised land. We also remember and recognize that people put a lot of faith and trust in him because he was the one who faithfully followed God. Even later on in this book, we're going to see that he's mentioned for his faithfulness. 
But what was happening was individuals were beginning to say, you know, this isn't working for us. And so we're going to go back to what was. And what I want to encourage you in is this. Have you been in a moment in your faith where you're saying, hey, this isn't working for me. God isn't doing what I think he should be doing. And so I want to go back to what was. Or do we depend oftentimes on other things other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? One of the things that we're going to ask this morning and we're going to discover as we travel through these six verses is this question. Why must we hold to Jesus and not to other things? And before I start, it's kind of an obvious question. And we might sit here and say, well, sure, I believe in Jesus. But let me also ask you, where is your first go-to when something comes upon you that is either unexpected, challenging, or not necessarily the way you would want something to go? Do you automatically run to Christ? Do you only run to Christ? Or do you run to certain things that you might have, maybe material possessions, your education, your intelligence, your ability, other individuals, other assets, other words of advice, other self-help books, before you run to Jesus? And what was happening was the people were beginning to say, this isn't what we think it should be. And the author is saying, look, don't forget what you have been given. Don't turn to these other things that were good, but they are incomplete. Turn to the one who is perfect. You've heard me say before, in Christ we have the best of the best and we can forget all the rest. And so my question to you this morning is, are you holding on to the best? Or are you struggling, trying to find other means to aid you in your walk with him? I invite you to turn with me. We're going to look right at a transitional portion in, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 3. And it starts off, therefore. Now remember and recognize, and I've said this before, whenever we're in scriptures and we see a therefore, we want to understand what is the therefore, therefore. And we need to remember that this is a transitional portion after the author has so eloquently discussed the purpose of Christ's humanity and the reason for the cross so that we might have relationship with him. After he's established that foundation, we enter into this passage and he says, therefore, holy brothers, and again, recognize that brothers is essentially a cumulative statement, Okay, for us today. So it could be, therefore, all of you, or all of you who are in faith, or therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was a faithful as a servant in God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. The writer here is just trying to encourage these people not to turn back to Moses, as good as Moses was, helping them to see how much better Christ truly is. And so the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is right in the beginning, the transitional statement, and that is simply this. Since we share in a heavenly calling, we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Now, I want to ask you something, and this is a heart check for all of us. When we face life's joys and its challenges, how often do we fix our thoughts on Jesus? And the reason that I want to bring this up is the author is very careful to demonstrate the need and also recognize the verb in how it's placed and the action that it ensues. The action is not done upon us. We are the ones who are to do the action. That means that we have a responsibility to move forward and when we go through life to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And so my question simply is this. How often are you fixing your thoughts on Christ? 
How often are you physically saying, no, I need to be fixing my thoughts on the Lord rather than the things of the world? The other thing, too, is recognize that as we've just seen earlier in chapter 2, there is an enemy who wants nothing more than to distract us from fixing our thoughts on Jesus. And so may I remind you that this isn't just sort of a blasé, passive writing. This is almost a cry for battle saying, be ready, be actionable, and fix your thoughts on him. And so let me just ask a question. Review your week. What's happened? Both good and bad. Okay? And how much of your thoughts have been fixated on him? And be honest with yourself. Now, I'm not trying to guilt, but what I'm trying to do is just to have you ask yourself a true assessment of how you're walking with Christ. And to say, when things occur, when the good occurs, is my first thought, oh wow, look at how good I am, look at what I did. Or is it better or more of, God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your blessing. Or maybe when something bad occurs, are you saying, well, I've got to figure this out. I need to do this. I've got some money here, and maybe I can move it there to worry about this debt or whatever it is. Or do you go to God and say, Lord, help me here. Both in the good and the bad, how fixated are our eyes on Jesus. But also, let me ask you this. How fixated are they solely on Jesus? Because that's really what the author is driving toward. Are you looking and saying, well, I've got this issue, and I'll kind of look to Jesus for a little bit when I need him or when I've kind of exhausted all of my other resources, then I might go to him? Or do you fix your thoughts on Jesus? Another question that I want to ask you is when you wake in the morning, how many of us are saying, Lord, help me fix my eyes on you? As I go through my day, as I do whatever it is that you have before me, whatever you place before me, may my, may my eyes be fixated on you so I don't miss what it is that you're doing. I don't know about you, but often I have an agenda. I have things in my brain that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z today. And the funny thing is, I've told you before, there are days where I walk into the church and I'm not here for two seconds, and that agenda completely gets thrown out the window. And at first, to be honest with you, I become annoyed. Probably the next thing is, is I become a little stressed out. The next thing is, is I become maybe a little bit angry. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, are your eyes fixed on Him? This is what God wants you to do. This is where God wants you to be. This is what God needs you to focus your efforts on today. And so one of the things that I want to encourage us in is, is are we fixing our thoughts on him? Are we looking to him? But more importantly, what other distractions out there are distorting the clarity of our Lord and Savior and what he has for us? Because we're not actively fixing our eyes on him. And then we look, and we've asked this question, why, why must we hold to Jesus and not to other things? And the author says, hey, since we share in a heavenly calling, we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus. I want to go back and I want to say, what is that heavenly calling? Remember that we're coming off of what we talked about last week, that because of Christ's death on the cross, we can be in relationship with Jesus and share fam the family essence, okay? He can call us brothers and sisters and is not ashamed of it. So that's what we learned last week. So not only are we saved, but we're no longer orphans left to wander. We're part of God's family. But also what we saw last week is not only are we part of the, God's family, we share now in his kingdom. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. That's the calling that's being spoken about. And so the author is saying, look, because you are brothers and sisters in God's kingdom and you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, fix your thoughts on him. Actively 
Look at him and don't let the world or other things distract you. Now, in this case, he is going to essentially argue or attack what people were doing was that they were beginning to fix their thoughts on Moses. They were beginning to think, hey, maybe we need to go back to Moses because he was the one that did a good job. And here's the irony in this, right? These people are wanting to fix their thoughts back on Moses, but what do we look at when Moses was leading God's people? They weren't too excited about Moses, were they? There's the irony. So they're going back to something because they feel as if God isn't doing what he should be doing. And notice what I said. They're going back to something because they feel as if God isn't doing what he should be doing. And the case in point that I want to make is don't let your emotions or feelings rule the sovereignty of God. Because our thoughts and our feelings will lead us away from him rather than toward him if we're not submitting ourselves to his power and to his word. So since we share in this heavenly calling, we're to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Now why? Okay. Now the author is going to lay out the argument again. He's going to rebuild or sort of re-solidify this argument. Why should we? What's the reason? And this is the next thing that he says. First and foremost, because, and this is in the latter part of verse 1, Jesus is the apostle and the high priest we confess. So there's number one. Now, again, remember and recognize, for Jesus to be called an apostle, it is a very important term. He is the leader or an elevated individual in God's church, number one. But he's also the high priest. What do we mean by that? Why would they say he's the high priest? Later on, we're going to see that the author is going to establish an argument that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a great high priest who essentially everybody loved. But what's a high priest? And why is that important? Remember and recognize that prior to Jesus, the system that was there, the manner of how people approached God was very different than how we approach God today. It wasn't bad, but if we just walked right up to God back in that day, we're not going to have a very good day. And the reason was, was God dwelt with his people in the ark in the temple. For centuries, people knew that that's where God dwelt. God dwelt in a temple. The temple was destroyed. They moved in the tabernacle. The temple was rebuilt. That's where God dwells. And so everybody knew, hey, God is there. There's the temple. That's great. We know God is there. We know that he's among us. But we couldn't just go right up and say, hey, God, how you doing? We know in the Old Testament that the form of sacrifice was given solely to the duty of the high priest. That the high priest would prepare himself by cleansing himself and then, at the appropriate times, go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And so not only was the temple a spot where God was revered, but there was an inner court where the ark dwelt. We also know that there's this massive curtain that separates essentially the outer court from the inner court. And when the high priest would go forward and make the sacrifice, he would go in with a rope tied to him and make the sacrifice. The reason he had the rope tied to him, we discovered, is, is if something started going wrong and he said, you know, it's getting a little hot in here, and mind you, they didn't have Coppertone 150 back then, they could say, hey, we need to get him out of here because it would be an Indiana Jones experience. One person for the sacrifice could atone for the sins of the people. But now what they're saying is, hey, that's done because Jesus is our high priest. Now remember what happened when Jesus died. When Jesus died and he gives up his spirit Darkness comes over the land, and what do we know? We hear from Scripture that there's a great earthquake, and also what occurs in the temple. The temple veil, which separated the people of God from him, tears. Not from the bottom to the top, 
but from the top to the bottom. Okay, yeah, I'm like, woo, God's doing some cool stuff here. Um, <laughs> signifying that we are no longer, because Jesus has given his life for us, separated from him, because Jesus is now the high priest. And there is not going to be another. And what that does is it removes the intermediary. It removes the need for you, and I'll just say, if I was, I'll, I'll say I'm Melchizedek, to come to me for me to do what needs to be done for you. You now can say, okay, I just lost my job forever because Jesus is the high priest. That's what's being talked about here. And so I know I'm taking some time to talk to this, but for us today, we don't really remember and recognize how that system worked for centuries. And so I want to take a minute and I want you to think about this great transition that the people of God were going through when Christ came and the newness that they were experiencing, that all of these other things, all of what they relied on was now no longer needed and all that was needed was Christ, Savior of mankind, the great high priest, whom we have direct access to now. And so in that, what the writer is saying is don't forget this. Why are you turning to angels? Why are you turning to Moses? And in the future, why are you turning to Melchizedek? When all of those were good, but they're not complete. They're not the best of the best. And so modern day, you're like, well, hey, man, I'm not turning to Moses. I'm not turning to angels. I'm not turning to Melchizedek. But can I ask you, are you turning solely to Jesus? And lovingly, can I say this? If, we're, if we are turning to Jesus, then why? Why is the self-help industry booming among Christians today rather than turning to Christ? And I'll just leave it there. Are we turning to Jesus And so the author in the last part of this verse begins to say, this is why you should. Number one, because he's the apostle and the high priest we confess. And then in verse two, he begins to continue to solidify this argument. And he says, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So he begins to lay the foundation for this argument. And he says, okay, the next reason why you should focus your thoughts on Jesus is because, like Moses, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him. Okay, So he establishes that argument. And he says, look, I'm going to give you something that you can be familiar with. You're turning back to Moses, and so I'm going to do a comparison. I'm going to start off, and I'm going to say, look, fix your eyes on Jesus. And here's the thing. Number one, he's the apostle and the high priest. But also I'll give you this, like Moses, and everybody goes, oh, Moses, yeah, we know Moses. We remember him. We remember how faithful he was. We remember that he led the people out. We remember that he was the leader that got us out of all of this trouble. He was faithful. And so the author logically says, yeah, like Moses, so was Jesus. Jesus was just as faithful as Moses was. So that's a relatable comparison to begin to bring the argument in as to why Jesus is better. And I love how the writer does this because if he started differently, if he doesn't build the argument off the relatability that Jesus has to Moses, the people who are looking to Moses wouldn't have given him time of day. He builds it and he says, let me start off with something that you could relate to. Let me start off with what you know about Moses, but also how I can relate Christ to who Moses was. And so he gets them all on the same playing field. He brings them in. Some of you might know, and I forget the term in this, but this is essentially the relatability argument. When you are building something, you look for the commonality first, 
the shared ground to bring the people in. And then off of the shared ground, then you move toward the difference. Okay, it's a sales technique. It's a leadership technique. It's, it's how you bring about relatability to where people put their focus on you. And so now that the author has captured the attention of these individuals, he would say, you know what? We think Moses is better. We're not sure about Jesus. But we can agree. We can agree that like Moses, Jesus was faithful. Okay, great. Boom. There's a common ground. But then he moves forward. And after establishing that common ground, then the author says, but let me show you how different and much better Jesus is than Moses was. And so off of verse 2, he then springs into this greater argument in verse 3. He says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Boom. I'm building the argument. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Elevated. So we have common ground. Now let me show you how much better Jesus is. And then interestingly enough, watch what happens in verse 5. Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house. Commonality. Testifying what would be said in the future. We agree with that. Difference. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And then, boom, the big kicker. Oh, and P.S., by the way, you are God's house. Boom. There's the aha moment that the writer is expressing. And I'll explain this to you in just a minute. You are God's house if you hold to your courage and the hope of which we both. So the author in these verses, 3 through 6a, is essentially doing this. Now that I've established the commonality, now that I've said, hey, we're to fix our thoughts on Jesus because he's the the apostle and the high priest that we confess, now that we know that Jesus, like Moses, was faithful, let me show you the difference. And what we see in this is this, because unlike Moses... Jesus is the builder and the owner of God's house, not just a servant of it. That's the whole argument that's being made here. And what I want to talk about is this. For centuries, up until Jesus, Moses and any other follower of God was a steward pointing toward the Messiah. Interestingly enough, every other world religion is a steward pointing to God or the gods. The difference here is Jesus was God in the flesh. That's what's being driven here. And so in order to make an analogy that the individuals would understand, the writer uses the ownership of a home or the stewardship of a house. And so the first thing that I want you to see is this. As great as Moses was, from start to finish, we see that the author of Hebrews points us to the one Moses himself pointed to. That's what's going on here. The author is saying, look, you're fixating on Moses. I'm here to tell you that Moses was pointing to somebody else, and that somebody else is Jesus. The author urges the church, you and I, to consider not Moses, but Jesus. Don't go back to Moses. Moses was great, but all he was doing was pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And so, 
The author says, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. Why are we talking about the house? A, it's an analogy, but B, remember that the people back in Jesus' day, pre-Jesus, Jesus has eternally existed, but the Jesus that was on earth, remembered that they worshipped God in the temple. People remembered that God was in the temple, and people remembered that the Levitical priesthood were stewards of the temple. And right here, through this analogy, what the writer is saying is, is the temple is no more. You're no longer stewards of it. The owner of the house no longer dwells in the ark, but is seated at the right hand of the Father and now indwells you. That's what he's leading toward. And then he continues on and he says, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Ownership over all, extenuating his influence and his authority. And then the comparison. Moses was faithful as a servant. And notice this. Notice where he places him. Okay, don't miss this. If you're in your Bible, circle this. Moses was faithful as a servant above, over, in. In God's house. Not an owner of it, not a builder of it, not above it, not authoritative over it. He served within. He pointed toward, for lack of a better word, he was a renter in the home. And then it continues on. Testifying what would be said in the future. And then notice the transition, right? But. Right? But. And it's, this, is, this is what I want to stop for a minute. When we read this sometimes, we can just be like, yeah, therefore, Moses, holy brothers, you share in the heavenly call, blah, 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 yada, 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 but Christ was... I mean, if this, if this were a movie, if this were kind of a Netflix series, if this were sort of the modern-day equivalent, right there, this, there would be like music, and there would be this like massive transition yeah, you know, da-da-da, Moses was faithful. Bum, 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 da-da-da-da-dum, right? <sighs> Pay attention. But, don't miss this. Jesus is the owner of the house and the builder of it. Moses was a renter. Jesus is the builder and the owner. Now, just think about this. Anybody kind of in the construction world, anybody do construction, right? There's, a, there's an honor to the builder. There's an honor to the person that owns it. Let's just legally look at this, right? You've got an issue with somebody. You're going on to something, and you go, hey, I need to talk to the person, blah, 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 blah. You walk up to them, and they're in their house, and you say, hey, you know, I've got a problem here. This is going on. And they say, well, I'm just renting, right? Okay? Well, what are you going to do? You're going to say, okay, well, that's fine. Let's work this out. No, you're going to say, okay, thank you for that. And where are you going to go? You're going to go to the owner because the owner's responsible. Okay, it's just, it's just an analogy, but you're going to go to the owner. And so in this analogy, what's going on is people are saying, hey, you know, we got an issue, so I'm going to go over to Moses. And I'm going to say, hey, Moses, we've got these problems, and we've got these things that we need to do, and we think that you're going to do it. And what Moses is going to do is he's going to say, look, Bottom line, I'm not the owner here. I'm just renting. You gotta talk to the person who owns it. And that's Jesus. And then here's the thing that I love, okay? You go over to Jesus, whoo, sorry. You go over to Jesus, 
You find out that he's the owner. That's a big deal. Okay, now, now I'm talking to the man. But why the builder? Right? I mean, it's one thing to be the owner. It's a whole other thing to be the builder. And you look and you go, yeah, that's fine. He's the builder. Bum, bum, bum. When you realize... that he's built you. You are the house. That's why. Do you see that transition? So we're not just talking to the guy who's renting anymore. We're not talking to the one who says, hey, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of leasing with an option to buy here, but I have no ownership over this. I have, I have no right, really. Go talk to the man. So you go and you talk to the man and you find out not only is he the owner, okay, great, right? We're talking to the right person. But then you discover that the house that's being discussed is you. And he's the builder of it. Which falls all the way back to what we talked about in Hebrews chapter 2. It's a foundational building argument. And so we look at this and we see, it says, Moses was a faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying what would be said in all the future. But Christ is faithful as ownership, son, okay, over God's house. Boom. Ownership argument. And we are his house. If you have your Bibles with you, that's what I would circle. That's what I would emphasize. And we are his house. And then notice this. If we hold in our courage in the hope of which we boast. Don't go from Jesus. Don't turn back to the renter. Don't turn back to the one who doesn't own. Don't turn back to the one who hasn't built because the building is you. And then if you fall back into the line of the argument, you say, how was the house built and how was it purchased? Think about that. How was this house built and how was it purchased? And you go back to chapter two and you realize that the house was purchased and built because of this. That's how this house was built and purchased. And that's how you have part in this home. And that price that was given, we couldn't pay for. Why would you go back to the person who's just renting when you can go to the one who has built and owns and you share in co-ownership with him because of what he has done. We continue on, and what I want to show you is this. With the analogy of the builder of the house versus the servant of it, the implication that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make is that in the history of God's redemptive work, there has only ever been one church, one people of God, one house over which the builder, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rules and reigns. Don't miss that. Don't go anywhere else. In the redemptive history of the church, there is one builder, ruler, and reigner over all, and that is Jesus. And then interestingly enough, we get to this part where we realize and we recognize that we are his house. Now remember how impactful that would be. Because the people there were so used to the house of God is over there. The house where God dwells is the temple where God is, is in the inner court of the temple, in the ark. And all of that changed when Jesus died and rose from the grave. We're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And so guess what? 
the author is saying, why would you go to the renter when we are now the house of God? You are the house. I am the house. And we are co-heirs in it. Why are you going to Moses? The next thing I want you to see is this. As the son, the church is Jesus' inheritance. Have you ever thought about that? Anybody looking forward to maybe inheriting something from your family when they pass away? Anyone looking forward when you pass away to be able to pass on something to your kin? Think about that for a minute. As the son, the church is Jesus' inheritance. That's, that's what he gets, you and I. And he's excited about it. And that's why earlier when we read in chapter 2 that Jesus can call us brothers or sisters and not be ashamed in it. Okay, we're not that weird cousin Joe. Nobody named Joe here today, right? Okay, I talked about cousin Joe before, the odd cousin. Okay, if you are Joe, we love you, right? Jesus isn't ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of you. You are a brother or a sister in Christ and you share as a co-heir in his kingdom when you've placed your faith and trust in him. Why are you going back to look to Moses? And then interestingly enough, Jesus has rights over the house just as an owner has rights over his or her own house. Okay? Not to be mean, but you know, we own our home. You can tell me what you want to do with it. You can tell me, give me advice on how you think I might be able to better enhance it. But at the end of the day, I could take your advice or I could not take your advice. Why? You don't own it. I do. We do. That's what's going on. Jesus is the owner of the house. And so he gets to call the shots over his house and over his people. He's the one who calls the shot over his house and over his people. Moses, on the other hand, serves at the pleasure of the owner. All Moses is doing is saying, look, I am just leasing prayerfully with an option to buy. That's what's going on. I serve at the pleasure of the owner. Jesus is the owner. He's responsible to do only what the owner of the house instructs him to do, no more and no less. Can I ask a question? Anybody uh, own a home and you're renting it to someone? Okay, I don't need to see hands, but what would happen if you just went in there one day and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I didn't like this wall and I didn't like that wall, so I just decided to move this and do that. No, by the way, the bill's over there for you. Right? How often do we tend to operate that way with God? Yes, we are co-heirs with him, but Jesus is the owner. May we obey him and what he says and what he does. And so in this starting part, we've seen why should we hold to Jesus, and we've seen this greater argument. Unlike Moses, Jesus is the builder and the owner of God's house, not just a servant of it. And then, boom, we move into this last part that I've talked about, kind of the final aha moment. And that is this, why? Because we are God's house. God is the owner and builder of this house. And so may we take courage and hold on to our hope in Christ. I want to take a minute, and I want to just throw a couple of things out to you that I hope will challenge you, maybe encourage you, maybe you examine your walk with Christ. And the first thing that I want to do is heart check number one. And that's this. Because we are part of God's house, and Jesus, our builder and owner, how invested are we in the house of God? I just, I just want to throw that out. 
I get there are times and there are seasons. I get that we are busy. I'm, I'm not being judgmental. Um, I understand that there are moments when we can be more involved and less involved. But my question is, is this, are you invested in the house of God? Would it be better to say that maybe you would want to be invested because guess what? You also share in its stock, right? Companies sometimes say, hey, you know, maybe when we give some ownership to them and you're an owner in the stock of the company, you have a little bit more ownership or stewardship of what is there. And so lovingly, I just want to ask you, how invested are you in the house of God? The next question I want to ask is this. Another heart check. Because Jesus Christ is the builder and owner of God's house, how trusting are you of him to lead, guide, and direct his house? That's a great question for all of us. Jesus is the owner and the builder. We are simply stewards of it. We are ambassadors. Yes, we share in the kingdom of God, but the ultimate owner is Jesus. And so lovingly, individually, and corporately, we must ask ourselves this very question. Are we letting the owner and the builder own and build, or are we trying to usurp his authority? And then the last one. And I'm going to explain this, because theologically speaking, I'm going to say that when we are in Christ, genuinely and truly, when we've placed our faith and trust in him, we are his and there is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We do not fall from relationship with Jesus when we've genuinely entered in relationship with him. But I do want to make a point in this analogy that we're talking about. And this may offend some of you, but I'm going to simply ask this question, and that is this. Are you a squatter in God's house? Are you getting all the benefits of the home but not willing to obey its master? And may I lovingly say this to you. May you come to obey before you are evicted. Why do I mean that? Brothers and sisters in Christ, what I want to encourage you in is this. Being part of the home, being part of the ownership of the home, means obeying the one who is the owner of it. And so often, what can happen is individuals, they, they, they want the benefits of the house. They want the benefits and the comfort of the home. They want that place to go to, but they have no desire to obey the one who is owner and ruler over it. And on a technical level, in a legal definition, you are squatting in that home. And in a legal definition, and in a true manner, the owner of that home, if you are squatting, has every right to evict you. Why? Because you are not participating in the ownership of the home. Let me clarify that for you. We are saved by grace through faith. I don't want anybody to think that I'm talking about works-based salvation. But what I am saying is this, a manner to check your heart with Jesus is this, are you participating in his program and is he master over your life? If you love me, right, Jesus says? Everybody says, oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you, I love you, I love you, right? What does he follow up with? you will obey my commands. Oh, I, don't, I, I love you, Jesus, but I don't want to obey you. I want all the benefits. Give me the house, right? But I don't, I don't, I don't want to obey it. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. None of us are perfect. I'm not saying that we have to be. But are you obeying the commands of God? Are you wanting to obey the master? Are you wanting to build his house? Are you participating in the building of his house? Are you sitting there just saying, give me the benefits of the home and let me squat in it for a while? And lovingly, what I want to ask and pray is this. 
May you come to recognize that you need to obey before you are evicted. Why must we hold to Jesus and not other things? Well, first and foremost, the author says, since we share in this heavenly calling, may we fix our thoughts on him. And why is that so? And he builds the argument and he says, because Jesus is the apostle and the high priest we confess. Foundational point number one. Commonality point number two. Hey, just so you know, like Moses, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him. Common ground. But unlike Moses, Jesus is the builder and the owner of the house, not just a servant over it. And then the aha moment, because guess what? We are God's house. And so may we take courage and hold on to our hope in Christ. I want to leave you just with this last parting thought, and that is this. Because we are God's house, and Jesus is the builder and owner we are to fix our thoughts on him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the author of the book of Hebrews. Father, we thank you for these foundational truths. Father, we thank you for how systematically and logically the author essentially debunks the arguments or the ideas that other things are better than Jesus. Father, thank you for that. And in it, Lord, I pray that we would continue to humble our hearts, that we would continue to go before you. Father, may we remember and recognize that we are saved by grace through faith. I don't want anybody thinking that we have to work our way to salvation. But Father, an evidence that indeed we have been saved is this, that we are willing to obey the master of the home. And Father, thank you that in that we share and participate in it. Father, may we not turn to other things, may we not turn to other ideas, but Lord, may we fix our thoughts on you actively each and every day. And Father, in that, may we trust that as we do, your word and its instruction will lead us more and more toward you. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you mold and you shape us little by little into the image of God. Thank you that you're merciful and gracious. Thank you that you're slow to anger, abounding in love. But in that, Lord, may we remember and recognize that we are to be builders of your house because we are your house. May we build individually, Lord, but may we also build corporately as a family of Christ, sharing and participating in its program. And Father, in that, may you receive all honor and glory because indeed, you own this place. You own your people. We love you. We praise you. We pray and ask all of these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.